This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Megan from Stories of Win, and today I'm thrilled to be chatting with Dr. Andrea Gomez, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology and the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute at UC Berkeley. I'm thrilled to be doing this interview in person for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Uh, we are chatting here at NYU School of Medicine, where I am currently doing my postdoc, and Andrea did her PhD, and so she's visiting today to give a special invited uh, alumni seminar. Thanks for taking the time out of what I'm sure is a crazy day to <laughs> chat with me. No, it's really great to be back in uh, your alma mater and kind of see how the community has developed and grown since I, I was here last. It's definitely grown a lot. Don't recognize a lot of things, but <laughs> the people, the, the people yeah. uh, I still recognize. So it's, it's really nice to, to be back, see how it's grown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Well, we don't have a ton of time, so we'll just kind of dive right in if that's all right. And I'd love to start just by hearing a little bit more about you and your origin story. So how and when did you first get interested in science generally and in neurobiology in particular? Yeah, I guess I'm one of those unrelatable stories in that I knew from a very young age that mm. I wanted to be a scientist mm. ever since I was a child. Uh, I kind of infamously uh, wrote as a second grader that I wanted to be a microbiologist. Wow. <laughs> uh, but not because of uh, I was really interested in microbes. I was just really <laughs> interested in in small things. That's a, oh. that's like my uh, articulation of what I you know what my child brain was like. Huh. I was really interested in the in the unseen. So yeah, I would say that's kind of where I I would think my origin story. Maybe one anecdote would be in the playground. I was uh, playing rough with some friends, and uh, one of my friends got a bloody nose. <laughs> And I, I took a stick to his uh, blood because I was, I had just learned about red blood cells. Oh my gosh! And so I was really hoping that I could see the red blood cells, much to <laughs> the horror of the of the of the teachers. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, I would say yeah, from a very young age, and it it, it evolved, um, obviously into my current field of study. But yeah, I would say quite young. I was really interested in kind of. Uh, cellular molecular things i didn't have those yeah, terms back then, yeah, but yeah that's i would say uh where where my interest really lies. so even smaller than like bugs or anything yeah, from an early age yeah like, i don't even really I, what I you can see like, i don't even know where it came from but yeah that's yeah. so interesting so then how did that interest kind of develop at what point i guess did you identify that you were interested in research mm -hmm. um along that path and yeah how did those interests develop yeah, so I was very privileged. My mom was at the universe at the university at New Mexico State University, and she was running this uh, Rise program. She was uh, uh, the admin for the program, and uh, they had a, a summer program called the Medicinal Plants of the Southwest. Hmm. And so I had done that when I was a, a junior in high school because I had known that I had, had I, you know, when when you're that age, you're kind of toying with thinking about maybe medicine, yeah, or maybe science, and I had. Uh, 
the opportunity to apply because I had learned about it from my mom. Okay, cool. Uh, to this program, so. And what was the Rise program? Um, Rise, it's a part of the Mark program. It's a oh, it's okay. a NIH based grant to uh, recruit um, underrepresented people in STEM. And cool. so New Mexico State had this program, yeah. and part one of the, I guess, programs, the summer programs they did was, um, yeah, to do this Medicinal Plants of the Southwest uh, run by uh, Dr. Mary O'Connell, who, <laughs> her work was actually trying to understand uh, chilies, like the actual chili oh, peppers. Yeah. Oh my gosh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was kind of like, a, a, that was my first kind of foray into uh, research at a, like an, at a lab level. Okay, was that in, in college then, or that you was were still a, in high that school was in at high that point? School, yeah. Okay, that was cool. High school. And so that, did that kind of seal the deal? You were like, oh, I really like yeah, this research thing. Yeah, I like being thing. in the lab, <laughs> being like around um, nerds, you know, yeah. self-identified. <laughs> so it was nice to be in that atmosphere. And it was cool to be, you know, titrating things. And I guess maybe part of the process is it also being romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, you know, doing a... Uh, HPLC without you even, I didn't even know what that was I was just you know p putting things from the pipette into yeah. the, the tubes but that was just you know the romantic part of being a scientist oh that's very cool I'm also from the southwest and oh, from you? Arizona oh, okay. so I love okay. the, yeah. <laughs> the chilies I miss the, the chilies <laughs> um, but anyway okay cool so then you went to mm -hmm. um, you went to college and at that point where you pretty set like oh I want to do research I want to do graduate school were you already thinking on yeah, that so track at that point I was not 100% uh, in on research I was like oh maybe I'll do an MD PhD I knew I wanted to do mm -hmm. part research but not 100 like I would yeah. still kind of had like uh, flirtations with doing medicine until I got a really horrible grade on my anatomy and physiology <laughs> exam and it's because I didn't study right I was really interested yeah. in mechanism instead of mm -hmm. memorizing things and so uh, that kind of was a good uh, uh, juncture point um, for me to kind of just continue with uh, research. But I had, you know, in between summers, I had worked at an avian physiology lab mm. at New Mexico State University. And then also uh, during my time at Colorado State University, where I went to undergrad, I worked in a crustacean endocrinology lab. Oh, so awesome. Neuroendocrinology <laughs> lab. Which crustaceans? Uh, land back, uh, black land back. It's a G. carcinus oh. lateralis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is, yeah, but it's very just, cool. Uh, they're like these, these little um, crabs. They're found in, like in Puerto Rico or mm. the Dominican Republic, like in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, they're like very, some people I think, maybe think of, I don't know if they th think of them as pests, but I know that they, they'll have like their migration season and they'll like cover the roads and cause accidents when it gets slippery. But, <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, yeah uh, my uh, undergrad advisor, Donald Michaels, would um, have them shipped to Colorado State University oh in Fort Collins, <laughs> Colorado. And so, uh, yeah, I studied uh, crustacean molting. Very cool. Oh mm -hmm. man, well we could, discuss yeah. <laughs> all of these little, I want to hear more about the chilies and the crustaceans, but, um, but I guess in the interest of time, how did you end up settling on, you know, deciding to go to graduate school mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to, to some other path? Yeah, well, I was 
interested in evolution. That's why I kind of did those. Mm. Um, that's what kind of got me interested in those, I guess, those fields. I didn't know exactly. I didn't. Ha I hadn't like uh, articulated my vision. I didn't mm. know exactly, you know, what level. But I knew I wanted to do. You know, I was really interested in, in genes and um, and genetic programs. And I then um, looked. I didn't really even look for grad school. I went to the SACNIS conference, which I don't know mm -hmm. if you know, the Society yeah, yeah, for the Advancements of Chicanos and Native Americans in the Science. And I was just going around the booths and we're in the career fair section. And the um, NYU booth had like uh, this indigenous woman with like a, a banner for like the NYU Indigenous Club or the Native American Club at the time, what it was called. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, Hey, this is like, you know, I wonder what, what they're doing here. And it's actually, you know, I pulled out my resume. Her name was Deborah Stock. Um, she was here at this program and mm. she's like, you got to come here. And so just, I, this is the only, NYU was the only school I applied to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because you come from an indigenous background, mm -hmm. is that right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. was that like, oh, I could see myself here that kind of jumped out or it was like oh this is like a, there's a community here. yeah yeah it turns out that uh me and another student were the first native people in the program oh <laughs> but we wow. didn't know that uh but uh it was um yeah it was still good there's actually a, it was a really good native community at the downtown campus which oh, okay. i made a lot of uh colleagues still colleagues to this day that i awesome. communicate with but mostly in like social sciences um very no native neuroscientists unfortunately <laughs> yeah, hope, yeah yeah i was gonna say hopefully that's that's only increasing yeah. um but cool so you only apply to nyu you mm -hmm. got into nyu mm -hmm. presumably <laughs> mm -hmm. or obviously because you got your phd mm -hmm. there um so can you give kind of a, a short synopsis of what you were studying in your PhD and what you found? Yeah, so I joined the developmental genetics program um, due to my interest in evolution. Yeah, and, <laughs> and small things. And, <laughs> and uh, my, my PhD project was uh, interested in the development of synapses. So I kind of got into neuroscience by way of uh, developmental genetics. I became a neuroscientist mm. um, because my model was the synapse. I see. And we were really interested in the exchange of signals between the, the presynaptic and the postsynaptic side. So when two neurons come together, how do they know where to make a connection, um, how do they know how strong to make the connection, um, and what type of physical molecular elements are there to, to allow for that type of signaling to be engaged, not just during development, but throughout life. Hmm. And my uh, synapse model was the neuromuscular junction, which is the, the connection between our muscles and our motor neurons. And I uh, was focusing on this uh, protein called LRP4, which is a postsynaptic membrane that uh, postsynaptic protein that sits on the muscle that essentially signals to the motor neuron that's growing toward it to stop and make a connection. Mm. Without this gene, uh, animals uh, die at birth because you mm. never form neuromuscular synapses, which are mm. critical to uh, allow for contraction of muscle and contraction of your diaphragm. So you yeah. need it as soon as you're born. Um, and animals without these uh, set of ex uh, signal exchange uh, uh, proteins, they are born paralyzed. Mm. So um, my PhD 
question was to understand mechanistically, you know, what part of the protein was, you know, driving that organization? How did it recruit other components to uh, allow for signaling, you know, at the muscle, but also back to the motor neuron? Mm -hmm. And so my it was a very structure function focused question. Um, I got to a point where I had thought that it was going to be engaged, you know, the signaling was going to be an intracellular pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I found out through some uh, molecular genetics and some transgenic animals that the intracellular domain of this protein was not needed oh, <laughs> for synapse formation, <laughs> which at the time was uh, really disappointing because it was not a very interesting result. But the interesting result was that I made a, a rescue of the lethality mm. of the animal. And so then the question was like, well, this gene LRP4, which is critical for forming neuromuscular synapses, um, because these animals die at birth, like we hadn't been able to study its role in the central nervous system. So uh, at the same time, Rob Frumke had just joined uh, the faculty uh, right next door to my lab in Skirball. Mm. And, you know, he was young and excited. And so he was willing to hear like my my ideas. And he's like, well, why don't you just build a rig and test, you know, test these animals. And so that's, I guess, the origin story, how I became a a physiologist. Oh, okay, I see. So basically, like you had to kind of pivot your project a little bit because what you found that the intracellular component wasn't actually essential. So then that created an opportunity to or you took the opportunity then to look at it instead in the brain. And so the rescue you were referring to, um, what was that rescue then? Yeah, so um, this gene is, it's called, again, LRP4, Mm -hmm. it's uh, expressed in the muscle, um, but of course it's expressed in other tissues, but we wanted to say, okay, this gene is actually signaling from the muscle to tell the motor neuron to stop and differentiate, and also telling the muscle, like, you know, in cysts or like adjacent to recruit, you know, the acetylcholine receptors mm-hmm. um, or are the neurotransmitters that are at the neuromuscular junction. And so I made a cell type specific rescue. So I rescued this gene only in muscle, so only expressed it in muscle. And that was sufficient to not only form neuromuscular synapses, but it was also sufficient to rescue the lethality of the animal. I see. So the animals could then survive. So then you could focus on what it was doing in the brain. Exactly. So then I had an opportunity to study a mutant adult brain. Awesome. Yeah. So, what did you what did you find then? What was it doing in the brain? <laughs> so, uh, it, so the, yeah. So the we looked where it was being expressed in the brain, and it was expressed in in the hippocampus, as we know, a region critical for learning and memory. And so, it's also a really great uh, sandbox for molecular biologists to test their physiology mm-hmm. questions because <laughs> the circuitry is just um, so beautifully yeah. uh, uh, sequential. <laughs> and so. I uh, did uh, whole cell patching in CA1 neurons and found that in, in mutant animals and and, determined, and saw that uh, this gene was critical for not just um, synapse formation, a number of synapses were reduced in this mutant, but also mm-hmm. um, synaptic plasticity was completely gone in the hippocampus of these animals. Oh, interesting. And so um, we determined that it was because the, the cells were not... Uh, able to recruit the amount of uh, input that's needed to cross a threshold for for plasticity. Oh, interesting. Um, rather than the neurons being incapable of engaging plasticity, the neurons were in 
capable of engaging plasticity, but the synapse numbers were just so reduced that it didn't cross that threshold for it. Oh, okay, really interesting. Yeah, so it was kind of a cool, you know, story to show that this synapse uh, in the periphery at the neuromuscular junction, the way that this bi-directional signaling is happening there is also conserved in the brain in a completely different um, synaptic context. Hmm. And are there like human conditions where this this gene is impacted and then that can tell us something about their neurological deficits? Then? Yeah, there's actually a set of um, diseases and autoimmune diseases that um, patients will develop um, immunity uh, or develop antibodies to some of these critical components at the neuromuscular junction, uh, like LRP4. Mm. And occasionally, um, sometimes these antibodies can cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and oh, interesting. the idea is that potentially they're disrupting the, the function of the gene there, but uh, mechanistically that hasn't, and physiologically that hasn't been determined. Of course, the um, these uh, set of disorders um, are the, the predominant uh, pathology is like motor behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Because these right. genes are critical for the, the neuromuscular synapse. Yeah, really. But um, these, yeah, these patients also have some cognitive um, yeah. um, issues as well. Very cool. So that sounds really cool. And a nice example of like taking sort of a null result and mm. taking it in a different direction. Cause I, I know I certainly, and many people I know in grad school came across that at some point or another, and it can be a little like, ah, oh, what do I do with this? And then, um, so that's really cool that then that was like a new opportunity to dig into physiology mm. and learn yeah, learn learn something cool. Um, so then I understand you did your postdoc in, in Switzerland. So can you talk a little bit about that transition from grad school to postdoc? Like, did you know that you wanted to do a postdoc or how did you come to that decision? And then what led you to your particular postdoc lab and moving to Switzerland? Yeah. So my PhD work was really focused on kind of the structure function, like thinking about the proteins, how they're signaling, where they're signaling, what part of the protein are they interacting with other proteins. And when thinking about how synapses in the brain or across the body are organized and thinking about how can complexity arise, you know, from mice to humans um, with the same number of genes that I just like, it, it didn't make sense to me that it would just be different combinatorial uh, engagements between like different flavor, you know, different amounts of protein X or protein Y, which generated different levels of complexity. And so I was really searching for some mechanistic reason why you could have like the same number of genes and different complexities. Um, Mm. And that's what kind of got me into the field of alternative RNA splicing. Um, which is an RNA mechanism, and it's a, a it's it's not directly related to to synapse formation, mm-hmm. but this was a mechanism, as we know from the central dogma, that the uh, RNA when it gets read from the DNA, and it's not uh, the ones that become mRNA, they are not fully. Um, ready they need to be processed they need the introns to be to be cut out and the Mm -hmm. exons spliced together and during this mechanism you can have skipping events which result um, in a from a single gene you can have multiple um, versions of the same gene or multiple isoforms so this you know may not seem directly related, but this mechanism uh, actually provides the possibility to generate actually a lot of different flavors of the same gene mm-hmm. with p- 
potentially different protein structures or variations of the same structure, essentially expanding the the signaling capacity of of, uh, of the gene or hmm. of these proteins. So I was really interested in exploring, you know, whether or not this could be a mechanism for. Uh, driving, I guess, evolution and brain complexity, mm. and so I—that's kind of what uh, made me go to um, to Basel to study with uh, Peter Scheifele. Okay, because does is is there like evidence that more splicing events kind of relates to or com- organism complexity, exactly. quote unquote? Uh, exactly. I mean, C. Okay. elegans—they have about twenty thousand genes. Mice mm-hmm. have about twenty thousand genes, and mm-hmm. we have about twenty thousand <laughs> genes. But like our uh, the complexity of our 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 brains are are vastly different, yeah. right? So, um, if you look at splicing, alternative splicing, um, you see compared to any other tissue in the body that our neurons have the highest degree of splicing. And also, mm-hmm. if you look at um, primates, um, they actually just show the highest extent of splicing in um, in, in mammals. Okay. And this is not uh, only a rule for for mammals. It's mm-hmm. also um, octop- octopus, octopi, <laughs> <laughs> octopuses. I think they, I, I recently interviewed it? someone actually okay. who studied octopuses, <laughs> and that's what she said. <laughs> um, they also have complex um, brain structures, oh, and yeah, they yeah. also have uh, and they do a, a, a lot of splicing yeah, too. Oh, so splicing. cool! So there's definitely like a uh, at this point kind of a, a correlative uh, association between like the diversity of RNA that's um, generated in species and their brain complexity. Um, my question is like, how can we determine whether or not these versions are actually participating in functional roles in the brain? Hmm. Um, there was, there's actually kind of like a, uh, a history or a controversy that, you know, these genes were, these splicing isoforms were actually not even being used. It was just like a, oh. a transcriptional noise type of thing. I see. Kind of um, like exhaust fumes or something. Yeah, just for, yeah, yeah. Just like just a result of, you know, just kind of these random things happening. And that evidence was, um, or the reason for that perspective is because of um, people looking at shotgun proteomic sequencing and they couldn't find all these isoforms, all these like variations of these genes. Mm-hmm. And and part of the reason, which, you know, probably part of the challenge with uh, shotgun proteomics, which if, if, if you don't know, it's you just kind of take your proteins, you digest them, and you run them in these machines where these peptides are, are flying around really fast <laughs> and whether or not they fly in the machine will determine whether or not they can get detected eventually. And so if your isoform or the region or the region of um, the protein that gets changed is flying, then you'll be detected. But if it doesn't fly, then you know then you don't detect it. So okay. it was I think it was mostly a problem with the, the technology at the time. Hmm. But now there's you know a lot of evidence that these isoforms exist in protein form. Mm. Um, these RNAs are engaged on the ribosome. Um, so we know that the ribosome is at least trying to make these uh, these isoforms. Um, but right now, the state of the RNA splicing field is to try to, you know, see uh, how these isoforms are changing the function of neurons, how they're changing the function of circuits, and, and, and I guess kind of larger picture questions like how they're changing behavior um, at the moment. So Very cool. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like that's at least one major focus of your lab yes. now. Um, so yeah, could you give kind of a Again, a brief summary, maybe of what you found in, in your postdoc and how mm-hmm. that led to 
starting your own lab and the questions you're interested in your own lab? Yeah, so my my postdoc work focused on a gene called norexin. It's another synaptic organizing transmembrane protein. Mm -hmm. And this gene is notorious for being extensively alternatively spliced. When it okay. was first discovered in the, you know, the 90s, it was already known that it was highly alternatively spliced. But mm -hmm. for the last, you know, I don't know, 20 years or so, I guess, it was unknown, 20 years plus 30 years, I guess, that it was like, un it was unclear how these specific patterns, even though people knew that there was, you know, specific sites that were particularly spliced or not spliced. Um, and my postdoc work um, actually uh, was to identify an RNA binding protein that was facilitating those choices at a particular region. And, the, and this region, um, is uh, a ligand binding interface. And so it increasing or decreasing the length of the protein at that splice site mm. uh, changed the uh, affinity of that protein with different um, different repertoires of protein. So in one context where you had the isoform that contained the exon, it recruited one set of proteins. Um, without the exon, it recruited a different set of proteins. And what mm -hmm. my, po my postdoc work showed that this actually tunes the strength of synaptic um, strength um, in hippocampal neurons. Oh, really interesting. Was that, it sounds like that was probably an earlier, maybe like a first instance of showing like a direct link between these like splicing events and isoforms to actual like synaptic function and diversity. Is that? So it was known that this isoform was critical for you know, organizing synapses in select ways, but it was unclear how mechanistically that happened. It mm. was, you know, we just knew that the these different versions existed in very select ways, but how it, the you know how it was mediated it was it was unclear. Very so, cool. Mm -hmm. So then, so now you have your own lab at UC Berkeley, and you're interested in RNA splicing and, and um, synaptic organization and, and function as well. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, you know running your own lab so far? You started in like 2020, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so how, how has that been going so far? Um, that sounds like a challenging time <laughs> to have started a lab. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, at least looking at your website, it sounds like you have other sort of interesting avenues of research also that maybe you're starting in, in your new lab as well. And I'd be interested to hear about that as well. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the pandemic, you know, my, my skill set of pivoting that I learned in my PhD was... Uh, uh, also, I had to employ for starting my lab because uh, during the pen or whenever I started my lab in January 2020, uh, <laughs> I was having my mice shipped over from Switzerland. Oh, and unfortunately, um, you know, once the international flights got closed yeah. down, oh, man. I essentially lost my my animals that I had been, uh, you know, breeding, growing up for like my all the you know all the projects that I had, oh. I had pitched um, to start my yeah. my, my lab. Um, which was a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> to put it mildly. And so uh, that had to be um, placed on hold for the moment until, well, mm -hmm. one, you know, things from the pandemic eased a bit and we could redrive some of these lines. But during the summer of 2020, I was contacted by a clinician at UCSF um, named Josh Woolley, and he uh, asked if I wanted to collaborate or write a grant together on 
the role of psilocybin and cognitive flexibility from molecular and cellular level all the way to the human level, which is where he was at. He hmm. was looking for a collaborator who is in, uh, an expert in synaptic organization and synaptic plasticity. Mm. Um, and so that was my expertise. And so we wrote a grant together didn't get funded, which we were really disappointed about. <laughs> but uh, a month later, the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics uh, uh, opened up. And so mm -hmm. I wrote to to Michael Silver, who's the director, and I said, you know, I'm going to start working with psilocybin. I want to le learn more about, you know, what your center is doing. A couple of um, meetings later, I was on the executive committee oh, wow. <laughs> of the center. And then, at, you know, at that time, because I, as I mentioned, my mice were still in Switzerland, yeah. um, I kind of pivoted to um, what is the, um, how does this transient um, dose, high dose uh, of, a, of a compound or medicine um, induce long lasting changes uh, mechanistically? And because, you know, my questions are around, you know, what are the organizing sig signals at the connections between neurons? It was it was not much of a pivot. Um, yeah, I would say it just added, you know, psychedelics onto onto my questions already. Um, but that actually provided um, an opportunity to kind of advance uh a, a rapidly growing field at the time it wasn't like it was still kind of I think uh, I remember back then being a little nervous to 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 do that work because uh -huh. a little concerned that uh, I would be kind of pigeonholed in, in mm -hmm. like being a psychedelic biologist um, and there was still a bit more st stigma uh, about that work than there is now, mm -hmm. which two years later, it's kind of crazy how, how, yeah, advanced it's how much it's changed. But yeah, um, but yeah now my, my lab focuses on kind of real two big questions uh, of, of psychedelic biology. One is trying to understand, you know, the, the mechanistic, um, the cell and molecular mechanisms that are engaged. Um, from these from these medicines, hmm. um, what are the uh, transcriptional programs that are engaged? Um, what are the splicing changes that are are engaged? Um, and and we think that this is actually a really nice tool to um, engage plasticity in a very selective way. Yeah. Um, a lot of things cause plasticity in the brain. Trauma causes plasticity, but we don't necessarily want to be mimicking trauma. Right. Um, but we are really interested in. Um, the molecular programs engaged by psychedelics um, to one try to see if you know we could at the you know at some point in the future mimic some of these these effects you know in in situations where psychedelics are not appropriate like people on this schizoaffective spectrum yeah. or in situations where there may be like a chronic illness like neurodegeneration um, where you know chronic use of these compounds are is not actually very effective mm. um, so yeah we're really interested in kind of learning you know kind of the same type of questions that I've already been asking before is what information in our genome is is driving these types of you know cellular um, cell to cell neuron to neuron communications via synapses, um, and yeah, can we can we mimic it? Um, can we edit it? Um, and that's actually where the um, a new part of my work is uh, in my lab is to to kind of use um, CRISPR uh, technologies um, to try to edit the the neuronal neuronal epigenome. 
Oh, wow. It's oh, hard cool. to it's hard to get away from CRISPR when you're <laughs> at Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's, it's, a great, it's a great um it's a great atmosphere and I'm really grateful learning a lot from my I would have never done any CRISPR biology if I hadn't had like the experts around me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so cool. And it sounds too like that this um person that reached out to you and that was sort of a fortuitous phone call too, mm-hmm. it sounds mm-hmm. like to propose working on psychedelics and now that's like a major part. Part yeah, of your it was definitely like a silver lining, you know, it was, yeah. a, it was a strong pivot. Yeah. <laughs> Catching a theme. No, that's mm-hmm. awesome. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'd love to hear more about all of that. But um, in the interest of time, um, we only have time for maybe like one more question. So I do want to ask um, before we wrap up. Um, and I told you this in advance, but we, we always like talking at least a little bit about some of the, um, harder parts of Mm -hmm. the scientific journey in addition to the like highlight reel that we go through. Um, so we always like to give the interviewers opportunity to talk about a, a challenge or series of challenge that they faced at, at any point in their training or career. Um, so yeah, could you, would you be comfortable sharing, um, a challenge or series of challenge? Um, I think one of the, uh, most significant, uh, challenges that I had was during my PhD. It was actually, as I mentioned to you, I had this uh, result that I didn't feel was very exciting, which was that this intracellular uh, uh, domain of this transmembrane organizing signal was not playing a role. And I you know, at also at the same time, you know, if you're not feeling that great about the work, you know, like relations wise, like I wasn't feeling that like great about my relationship with my my uh, my PhD advisor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was like a lot of tension. And so mm-hmm. it was uh, that what I would say was in academia, like there's always you know that there's an uncertainty whether or not you will be able to make it in, yeah. in, in this world. And that kind of felt like, wow, like I just... I don't see how I could, I could, you know, get out of this or I don't know Mm -hmm. how I could, um, I don't know how to turn what I have here into something that like could let me move forward. And Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a plan B. I didn't like want to do anything else besides science. And that relationship between your advisor is like, is so, uh, uh, sensitive you know and yeah. it has such a big influence and you know I was also very young and yeah. <laughs> you know like that now as a as a as a as a PI like I I I recognize like you know how much I shouldn't have cared about you know that that interaction not because I shouldn't have cared what my advisor thought but um I should have just been focusing on on the science mm. um so yeah the the turning point was actually that I uh, stopped caring what he thought <laughs> and not in a yeah. dismissive way, but I just, you know, it, instead of it, like trying to do work to get validated, I did work to, um, answer my questions. Like I, I mm. just focused on like, okay, I got to think about what, what are some experiments I can do in this regard or that way. And at the same time, you know, uh, Rob uh, Frumke moved next door and then, you know, people on the floor I would just kind of be chatting with. And um, I, yeah, decided to take more of like a, a physiological uh, trajectory in the work. And I was just really f- like, learning about how to how to do these these types of techniques and asking really annoying people about things and (laughs) yeah that and and doing it for myself yeah 
doing yeah. that, like doing the work for myself, doing the questions for myself, like feel like I don't know, being more romantic, like the uh, feeling my curiosity and um, and fortunately also you know my my advisor. Um, He's he's a very rigorous scientist, and I'm very grateful that I was trained that way as well. But he was it was a little. I found it difficult to to convince him mm. <laughs> that I should do this. And so having like talked to the other people, like Rob, like it was you know they they could advocate that this is actually an interesting project to pursue. Yeah. Uh, and this was already my fourth year, my PhD. So I was already like mm. kind of like getting. I should have like been getting ready to think about graduating and said I was thinking about starting a new project. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say that was probably, that was a really difficult, like, yeah. moment. I don't know. It was like my awakening. Yeah. <laughs> like becoming like my own, uh, becoming a, my own scientist for myself. That was, um, that was the mo most important things that I think that, yeah, led to success in my career. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds like, well, first of all, that's an extremely relatable <laughs> challenge that I think many people will identify with, but also it sounds like you really like learned something from it and that has, you know, served you well in your mm -hmm. career moving forward. So awesome. Thank well, you again so much. It's been yeah, so nice to talk me. to you and yeah, hope you enjoy the rest of your